Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, you found the portal. I'm your host, Eric Weinstein, and I'm sitting here today with Vitalik Buterin, the uh, leader and uh, founder of the Ethereum world of cryptocurrencies and smart contracts. Welcome to the portal. Thank you. It's good to be here, Eric. Uh, it's terrific to have you. Now, in general, when I see you interviewed, immediately everybody goes straight to cryptocurrencies and mm -hmm. Ethereum. But one of the things that I've found fascinating about your story is, is that in order to be a good steward of uh, this new and emerging economics, mm -hmm. you've actually uh, applied yourself a great deal to standard and regular economic theory. And I was curious, um, if I understand correctly, you dropped out uh, of college after a year, you're self-taught mm -hmm. in economics, mm -hmm. but you've taken a real interest in understanding how markets and economic theory work. Is that a fair description? Yeah, I think so. And economics has been of an interest uh, for me uh, definitely for a long time. I mean, when I uh, discovered Bitcoin uh, back in uh, 2011 and I was still in high school, it was this kind of interesting confluence of ideas that I was uh, already pretty attracted to. So uh, of open source culture, that was something that a, and a good friend from high school, uh, Christopher Ola, had uh, already and have indoctrinated me with really well. Um, the uh, the mathematical ma and cryptographic aspects, also you know, libertarianism and Austrian economics was kind of the zeitgeist of uh, the Bitcoin space at the day. And those were you know, ideas that I definitely uh, found uh, philosophically quite att uh, attractive at that time. And, and I, was, I was definitely curious and I uh, read a bunch of books. I uh, and read the Austrian con uh, economics canon because that's what the Bitcoin people were kind of talking about all day. I uh, read some uh, kind of behavioral economics literature, Ariely, Kahneman, and uh, Chiadini and all of those people just because I knew that I had to read other stuff for balance. Um, and, and also economics itself is a kind in pretty mathematical kind of subject. Well, kind of, right? It's it's on the borderline because it's uh, kind of both mathematical and you, know, you got your curves and your derivatives and your intersections, but also humanities, right? It's uh, really at this intersection of like both figuring out how to apply these models to kind of specific cases and also trying to figure out, well, which models are really correct in the first place. And like the first question you can't answer with math, but the second question like, you really can't and you need other kinds of thinking as well. Well, this, this mm. is uh, an area of, of my own interest because the way I see it, mm -hmm. uh, economics is odd in a way that very few people I think have appreciated in that if we take what could be argued to be our two greatest ideas in scientific uh, scientific man, let's say, mm -hmm. one would be sort of the geometric dynamics of um, physics, and economics has been constructed to be an as-if physics, if you will. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, it inherits from 
the theory of selection, you could say that markets are the continuation of systems of selective pressures by other means. Mm -hmm. And so what happens when our two greatest ideas touch each other and they do it in a place which has very bizarre properties by my way of thinking, that is that economists are on the one hand very rigorous thinkers and are also very susceptible to what we might call political economy mm -hmm. and distorted thinking. Does that ring true to, to you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's definitely this uh, kind of combination of, uh, like for on the one hand, you have these uh, mathematical formulas, and on the other hand, these assumptions. And often, like the assumptions can be pretty, uh, pretty well hidden, and they're kind of difficult to see at first glance. Right. And like, it really can be subtle. Right. So like one of the arguments that uh, e economists tend to put forward is basically like mutually beneficial transactions are be are beneficial. And so like we should not interfere with them. Right. Like if I have uh, a um, coin bottle and I, I want to sell you the coin bottle, you're willing to pay five dollars, then I clearly value it at less than five dollars. You value it at more than five dollars. Therefore, the transactions on net good. And like I therefore I should give you the bottle and you should give me the money. And that's what we would do. But at the the reasons why that ten sometimes breaks down like are in many ways more subtle, right? Like first you have monopoly issues. Like if I'm the only person selling wine bottles, then I might want to sell them at a kind of higher price than you'd be willing to accept because I want to extract more value. And uh Sometimes the things that matter most to society aren't things that we can transfer between people from one person to another, like wine bottles, but like public goods. And like the biggest public good of all is is the idea, right? And an idea, well, if I have an idea and I give you the idea, I still have the idea. So it's something that once you release it, it's out there. And there isn't this kind of property that... So sh you know. should we just pause just briefly to talk about what a public good is for the sure. audience? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So a public good is technically defined within economics. Many people have an, an intuitive idea mm -hmm. as something which is, as you're stating, has this property of inexhaustibility. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And then the, the other attribute would be excludability, which is non-excludability for public sorry not non-excludability mm -hmm. sorry the the, yeah. the attribute of excludability mm -hmm. and um is used to define a public good so if something is inexhaustible and inexcludable then it has this weird property that even hardline economists mm -hmm. would agree that the market may fail to price it. in fact will fail to price the value to society of that object so there is an admission Mm -hmm. within economics, that there are zones of failure. Right. Well, I guess uh, the kind of the big kind of rethinking that needs to happen is that like there has long been this kind of zeitgeist that private goods, like things that I have, and if I give it to you, I don't have it, and you have it, are the norm, and public goods are a rare exception. But like really, public goods are pretty darn important, right? Like if we didn't have public goods, then we'd be trading sticks and and uh, bear pelts, and we'd basically still be cavemen. Like they're basically the well, like thing. an army would be a public good. Yeah, yeah, an army. Well, armies are interesting because they're kind of 
to us, like in a medium scale context, they're a public good, and in a large scale context, they're a public bad. Because if everyone's armies were forced to be cut down by a factor of ten, like we'd all be better off. So, economics is like really subtle that way, especially once you have kind of two layers of scale at play. Sure.、Yeah. Now, one thing that I worry a lot about that、mm-hmm. almost nobody seems to join me in、hmm. is that. In our mutual world, I don't know what to call it,、um, of people who are experimenting with what I would say the mainstream would consider far-out ideas like、mm. radical life extension, cryptocurrencies、mm. as a, you know potentially being rivalrous with、uh, mm-hmm. sovereign currencies.、Mm. But in our world, we talk a lot about the abundance economy. Mm-hmm. In a world of abundance,、right. and I'm terrified of a world of abundance because、um, one of the properties that software has had、mm-hmm. is that it has replaced physical goods、mm-hmm. and services, which have these attributes that they are not public,、mm-hmm. um, with small files. And when a small file is not encrypted,、mm-hmm. it has the attributes of a public good, and、mm-hmm. therefore value and price can can、mm-hmm. chasm. Um, that's terrifying、mm-hmm. because then this weird thing of markets, which allows us respite、mm-hmm. from dictatorship and somebody directing our activities,、mm-hmm. and allows us to self-direct, goes away、mm-hmm. because things can't be priced accurately. Are、yeah. you? Do you have any? Does that have any purchase on your thinking? Yeah. So, and I think. You've definitely kind of struck at a very important point. So I think kind of my own framing of the point is、uh, slightly different. So,、Please. I I think like first of all, like start off by think by realizing that kind of private property and things is not something that fell out of the sky. It's a social technology, right? It's that we have these kind of norms that basically say, oh,、uh, you can we will create this kind of mapping from objects to people. And if an object is mapped to you, then you're allowed to do basically whatever the hell you want with it, and other people cannot do anything with it without your permission. And if that concept did not exist, then physical objects would be public goods, right? Because like, if there's a Klein bottle over here, the Klein bottle would be there, but like really anyone could take it. And if you produce、uh, Klein bottles, then like you're not producing something for yourself; you're producing something for pretty much the, the first person who comes along and grabs it. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic. When I can, I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So property rights, right, are this kind of social technology that helps make、uh, private good economies tractable, and. We could consider making social technologies to make pub- public good economies tractable, right? Like the existence of public goods by itself is,、uh, I and mean, it's not good or bad. Like arguably, it's even good because it means that people can cooperate with each other on such large scales. The bad thing is that we don't really have good tools for handling it, and specifically, we don't have good tools for handling it that manage to. Simultaneously, avoid both not giving good results and like basically being centralized and dictatorial. And so, this is where 
my interest in uh, radical exchange comes in. So this was this uh, movement that was started by Glenn Weil a couple of years ago when uh, he wrote this uh, radical markets book. And he advanced some of his proposals, like harbor group taxes and uh, quadratic voting were the ones that are kind of the most popular. And the kind of the core kind of idea behind the idea is basically is like let's create structures of kind of norms and incentives that try to have the best properties that we can get out of markets, but do do so without like basically economically breaking in the way that we know kind of existing property rights systems do once you enter a world where kind of everything that you build just inherently affects millions of people. Well, this is this is an interesting perspective. You, of course, are famous for implementing this Ethereum protocol. Mm -hmm. But before we ever get to computer protocols, there are sort of legal and structural protocols that we impose upon ourselves in the form of government mm -hmm. and markets uh, that are subordinate to, to government. And there's a weird way in which you may start um, a process by which you write down rules uh, for how a society should function. Mm -hmm. But once those rules are written down, you may discover all sorts of unintended properties mm -hmm. of that rule set. And there's mm -hmm. a real question. Can we actually unhook ourselves from the killer app that is capitalism or American democracy? And uh, if we start to realize that that app is running out of control. I guess um, you know, for kind of myself as a kind of social technologist, and I definitely don't think that we should be kind of overturning entire countries with the new mechanisms overnight. I think, uh, oh, and I wasn't you know, insinuating. Oh, definitely. I think uh, like that's like, figuring out how to kind of solve like grand problems of humanity is a long-term goal. But I mean, short-term goals are there's definitely there's little things that we can make better, right? So. I, and this is actually part of why I find uh, cryptocurrency and, and blockchains interesting because they are, in a lot of ways, this ideal ground for ex economic experimentation of different types, right? So, like to give one concrete example, in in uh, so one of the ideas that Glenn Weil and myself have uh, come up with and are pushing forward is something called quadratic funding, and. The way that quadratic funding works is roughly this, right? So you have a central kind of pool of funding, and you could imagine this coming from a government. You could imagine this coming from wealthy donors. You could imagine it just kind of being put together by some like crypto economic protocol. It could come from anywhere, and then you allow people to like basically set up projects, and you let people say. I have a project, here is something that I'm doing, and if you like this, then you can donate to me. And you let people donate to projects. And then the core of the mechanism is basically that if there is a project that multiple people donate to, so there's some project, you donate to it, and uh, someone else donates to it as well, then 
your donation doesn't just benefit you, it also benefits the other person. And the other person's donation doesn't just benefit them, it also benefits you. And so to kind of counteract that uh, kind of market failure, the mechanism basically says, well, we're going to multiply the effect of your donation by two and multiply the effect of the other person's donation by two. And so now both of your incentives are kind of aligned with the whole. And you extend this mechanism so it, instead of supporting two people, it supports an arbitrary number of people, and you kind of calculate these subsidies across all possible pairs of people. And what you get is this formula that basically says you let people donate to different projects, you look at how many people donated and how much money you've donated, and based on this, from the central pool of funding, you give this extra subsidy. And so it basically is like a market for public goods, right? And... In the uh, Ethereum ecosystem, there's something called a Gitcoin grants, where we've basically started like trying to use this mechanism to fund public goods inside the Ethereum ecosystem, right? So this could be implementations of the Ethereum protocol, it could be scaling solutions, it could be wallets, it could be educational resources. And we've had a kind of test round recently with about kind of $200,000 in this central matching pool, and it recently finished. I mean, you can go to uh, gitcoin.co slash grants to see the results. And you know, we got contributions from hundreds of people, and the results it gave were actually pretty reasonable. So fantastic, yeah, yeah. And, and so like I think Ethereum could have uh, a lot of value as and just being a test net bed for and decentralized governance and decentralized uh, public good funding infrastructure of this kind. And well, I think that, that that's fascinating. I guess one of the ways in which I would understand that is, um, and when my wife, who's an economist, and I talk about this stuff, we often talk about. A market democracy has these two voting systems. One is one dollar, one vote, and the and other is one person, one vote. Theoretically, anyway, even yes. if that's honored only in the breach. Yeah, and like liberal democracy does this horrible thing of like treating these as opposite poles, where something is either one or the other, and they're and they're often fighting each other. When really everything's a spectrum. And I like that a lot. I mean, another thing that we've been discussing recently, um, mm -hmm. and this again is sort of joint with with Pia Milani, is thinking about the Chicago approximation mm -hmm. where you've got some reality that's incredibly nonlinear and complicated. Mm -hmm. And then weirdly, in a, one of these famous instances where the map is not the territory, you take this incredibly simplified world where agents have this mm -hmm. properties you can't even believe you would ascribe to a human being where you mm -hmm. call it homo economicus and you, mm -hmm. it's perfectly rational and it, it has all of these characteristics like an automaton that only makes rational decisions. And then you impose that like mm -hmm. through law and economics programs and suddenly you've distorted your society by taking the map as the territory so seriously that you don't realize that you're destroying something and distorting it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, um, no, that's no, definitely the, uh, like it's a social, like it's one approximation and I mean, we're never going to have approximations that are perfect because the world is just like, so... I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, and the world is just so complicated and so uh, even rapidly changing in the 21st century. Like, approx in all approximations are bullshit, but like you have to find a couple of good ones that work reasonably well and make progress for us. And I think that one of the things that's unfairly done to cryptocurrencies is that we expect them to solve all of the problems that already mm -hmm. cropped up 
Yes. In our <laughs> forms of governance and our mm-hmm. forms of, of currency and exchange and court systems. Mm-hmm. And that what we should be asking of them is to be improvements or to augment mm-hmm. already existing systems. Now, one of the odd things about governance mm-hmm. um, is we could view you as in some sense starting a rival virtual country hmm. um, that has a legal system because uh, the Ethereum, I don't know what to call it, network pro- platform protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it controls ha- coins and it has the right to reassign those coins. And not only that, but it d- has a, a stand-in for the legal system in the form of what are called smart contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, a, 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 we have this concept in governance, I guess it goes back to Weber, that a government is supposed to be a monopoly on violence, which is an odd definition that you recover the concept of government from monopolizing violence. And then you you sort of unearth and, and unpack all of the features of government from that one mm-hmm. generating function. In some sense, a cryptocurrency mm-hmm. and smart contracts derive from math rather than violence. Well, they derive from math and social consensus, right? Well, so, I love the fact that you, I was going to get to that, but... Yeah, I know, because this is important, right? Because, like, for example, you know, you have the Bitcoin blockchain, and then you have the Litecoin blockchain, which operates under like, almost exactly the, set of, the same set of rules as the Bitcoin blockchain, and yet the Bitcoin blockchain has a $100 million market cap, and the Litecoin blockchain has a $3 billion market cap, or something like that, and much less usage. So... Like blockchains are definitely not just math and technology. Math and technology are the substrate, and maybe in the same way that the military is like the substrate of keeping a country together. But well, the that, extended military, yeah. including police forces, it, exactly. But like they're the substrate, but they're not the country. Right? The country is the community. Well, and this goes to what I would love to get into you with. Uh, love to get into with you which is the way in which different utopian dreams collide Hmm. in the space of cryptocurrencies. So for example, there are some dreams that may sound more like what um, I assume you may be active in the effective altruism community. Is that Mm -hmm. a possibility? Yeah. Um, Which tries to figure out how to do the most good, uh, to do good efficiently Mm -hmm. rather than sanctimoniously. Mm -hmm. Um, There are other people who have this idea of, I, I, I just want to, a retreat from other human beings and I want to be left alone. I don't want to be taxed. I don't want to be told what to do. Very strong libertarian perspective. Sometimes those people are the same people. There's two kinds of libertarians. There's, well, there's many ways to split libertarians into two kinds, but right. one, like there's the leave me alone type and then there's the kind of conquer the world type, right? The kind that kind of relishes like, seeing uh, fiat currencies be destroyed and replaced by uh, Bitcoin and it's uh, kind of you know, creating a, a thousand a, a year kind of reign of sound money that, uh, and, I, and I mean, I generally have this uh, kind of instinct that like when someone says that like we should impose a lot of short-term disruption and harm on the entire world for the sake of some nebulous long-term gain, that's something to be skeptical of. But so I'm definitely- yeah, Underline the word skeptical. Mm-hmm. You're using an extreme form of understatement. Yeah, yeah, and like I guess so. I'm, you know, I'm definitely not in in the camp that kind of actively relishes like fiat currency is being destroyed. But I mean, there's 
And I, I definitely don't think that all Bitcoiners do. Like there is some that do see it as kind of a, something that's supposed to coexist and something that's supposed to provide a check and balance against the government's monopoly on issuing money without you know, replacing it entirely. So you know, there are there's definitely enough different visions within individual communities. There's uh, different visions between different communities. And there's, it's not just visions about what cryptocurrencies should do to the world. It's also visions about like what, how cryptocurrencies should work internally and what they should do to each other. So like that, in that sense, I guess, uh, like cryptocurrencies are interesting in, in blockchains, not just because of like what they can do to the world, but also just as this kind of microcosm of the world all, all into themselves. I mean, like we talk about countries, like virtual countries, but you know, there there's many virtual countries now. There's over fourteen hundred on coin market cap, and they have some analog of uh, geo- you do th- you, you know. do think of them as virtual countries. It's I mean, all models are bullshit, but some are useful. Well, to the extent yeah. that a country is a sensible yeah. thing to, yes. to claim, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm. so. In that world where we're dealing with um, often very... With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Very radical individualism mm-hmm. um, and uh, a very strong sense that there is something wrong with the coercive aspect of a government. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you worry that something that you have given birth to um, may start to behave in very different ways than you would ever want definitely i mean probably the closest um, that we've seen to things like this happening already would be the uh, the initial coin offering boom in uh, 2017 and 2018 and like basically what happened there was that people saw that cryptocurrencies are something that could potentially hit a very high value and so people started saying oh like I'm I'm raising money like anyone come and like give me 50 million dollars and I'm going to build a cryptocurrency and I'm going to make it great and I'll turn your 50 million dollars into 50 billion guaranteed. And this like and like it's complicated, right? Because I mean, on the one hand, like the possibility of and of raising money and using it to fund uh, cryptocurrency development, like it's it did a lot of good, right? And like in general, like the open source community, it's and it kind of acutely suffers from this kind of public goods challenge that we talked about because an you know, open source software is a very public good, and like we saw some very public kind of splats involving open source software being under maintained, like the Cloudflare and of issues a couple of years back when it turned out that an open SSL library was like really really under maintained despite billions of dollars of value depending on it. And with cryptocurrency, suddenly you can make things that are completely open source that through coins do have a funding mechanism. And like, you know, this has 
mass like massively accelerated the development of many kinds of cryptography, zero knowledge proofs, and peer-to-peer -peer networking, a lot of other things. But at this, on the other hand, like it's also given rise to this kind of speculation, and in many cases, the projects turn out to be outright fraudulent, right? But uh, it's a really delicious and weird situation. I haven't asked you about it yet, but hmm. your, I presume that your net worth mm -hmm. crashed a great deal, it got run up and then came, came yeah, back yeah, it down. It did, yeah. And were you happy in any way about that? Relieved. Relieved. <laughs> yeah. So when uh, the at, right at the top of the big bubble, like in December 2017, um, when e, uh, Bitcoin was hitting 20,000, ETH was hitting uh, 1,400, I, I made this tweet and well, a series of tweets uh, and that kind of became somewhat famous within the space where I basically said the cryptocurrency space has reached half a trillion dollars. Does does it deserve it? Like, do the things that it's actually accomplished, like hold a candle to the uh, promises that right. the market is ascribing to it? And I mean, the subtext of my answer is not yet. And I was uh, proven very right uh, fairly quickly. And But you didn't short it, did you? So the I, mean, I did can get and uh, get the ethereum foundation to sell about uh, 70,000 eth like basically at the top and that's doubled our runway now so like the, and it was one good decision that had a and that had a lot of impact but you know, did not short i should say that hmm. i was um weirdly somewhat relieved as well i view that the innovation of decentralized um, transactions and the bit, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard for me to say because I actually am convinced that the blockchain should be an intermediate state and should mm -hmm. not be the permanent mm -hmm. version of decentralized computing. I agree. Okay. Um, but I thought that that was such an amazing innovation that you could have a locally enforced mechanism without a centralized authority but with a global ledger on mm -hmm. which which i i see of it as a as a point of um intellectual failure that mm -hmm. in some sense you're mirroring mm -hmm. the transactions of the physical world so for example um for those uh, listening at home who don't have a visual here vitalik uh has several glass bottles next to him were he to give one to me, which he shouldn't do right now, but um, the idea would be that it would no longer be in his space and it would be in mine. Mm -hmm. And that property of atoms uh, hmm. has been somewhat mirrored mm -hmm. in Bitcoin and mm -hmm. blockchain and Ethereum transactions. And this is like the concept of like money as a thing, right? The kind of the scarcity of the 21 million limit. If I give you five coins, I have five less and you have five more. Right. And so the idea yeah. is that it's a, what you're doing is you're porting conservation laws hmm. into, from the physical layer into the logical layer. Right. And yeah, and I, this, and if to some extent kind of re reflects the kind of very deeply kind of Austrian economic libertarian origins of the, uh, the space way ba back in the end of 2009 to you know, 2013 days. And I mean, creating like digital gold was pretty much the, like, uh, and a digital payment system was the first use case. 
But I, mean, I definitely think that like we can and should be thinking about point systems that work in ways other than money. Well, I, I agree with that. And I also think that it isn't digital gold because um, as the saying goes, you know, gold or money has no stench mm -hmm. and that the blockchain is this bizarre difference with the physical world mm -hmm. in that it is a distributed ledger that um, may be somewhat anonymous, mm -hmm. but it still gives the history. Like if mm -hmm. I hand you a dollar and, and you don't have access to um, any particular um, means of analyzing whose DNA is on that dollar. You have no idea where it's been. Mm -hmm. And these, that is not, that is violated by the current blockchain type implementations. Yes. So it isn't a complete port of the physical world into Indeed. the digital, but it is mm -hmm. a, an astounding one. And I guess I get very frustrated with the economics questions like, well, what's good, for, what's it good for? Where's the killer app? I mean, we have mm -hmm. all of whatever's left of human civilization to figure out mm -hmm. what this thing is meant to do. Yeah. And I'm not very worried that we're not going to figure it out. I mean, we're going to figure it out sooner or later because a conservation law in digital space is just too valuable. Is that wrong? Are you worried at all about the search for, like, I, I just hate this question. You know, where's the, where's the killer app? And I'm thinking, mm. chill out, man. It, it, this is an astounding intellectual achievement. Is that wrong? Yeah, and I think there's definitely yeah, a long time to go. And I think you know, the apps will come. You know, there's, you know, the ones that are coming right now are basically kind of financial, but I think, I mean, that's kind of true just in part because the, finan the existing financial system is just like so ready and waiting there to be disrupted. But in, like, in the long term, like there's there, there's is disrupted a polite term for destroyed. <laughs> you choose. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, but I mean, there is something interesting here. You're 25 years old. Mm -hmm. Every bit of your adult life is mm -hmm. post 2008. Mm -hmm. And to be 25 years old and in charge of a financial ecosystem to the extent that anyone is in charge of Ethereum. I mean, I, I don't want to claim that you are sitting there running and making all these decisions. That's an astounding thing that, that this has fallen to somebody who, whose adult life is post the crash. Hmm. Do you think about that at all? That you don't have the same associations the rest of us do with markets when they were claimed to be working well. Like during the, the during the era of the great moderation, supposedly right. when volatility was banished. Yeah. You were what, so 13, 12. Right. So one thing that I kind of only realized recently that I found interesting is that there like there aren't kind of two tribes here. There's three tribes. Right. And what I mean by this is that there's the tribe that says markets are were, are are great. And there's the tribe that says markets are bad and like we should move to more things that look like political mechanisms. But then if you look at kind of the, the a zeitgeist that's kind of fairly popular in the cryptocurrency space, I mean, definitely even still now to a big extent, it's that markets are great, but the thing that existed and exists like isn't markets. And so... 
I guess like there's people who are pro-market and who see kind of the existing financial system as being that. And there's people who are pro-market and who see the existing financial system as being like yet another one of the perversions of that that needs to be overcome. Well, it's odd because I would love to fix mm-hmm. our democracy. I'd love to fix our markets. But I'm, I have to say, I believe that I have grown up in a, an approximately 50-year bubble, mm-hmm. um, which the silent generation and then the boomers presided over. Mm. And my own read is that because of their inability to figure out sufficient innovation mm-hmm. to take over from the previously innovative system, that the world of human expertise has been almost completely contaminated by special pleading and political economy. So that many of us who don't have a particularly Austrian or libertarian bent Mm -hmm. are just sick Hmm. to death of Mm -hmm. being lied to by people claimed to be Nobel laureates in economics. Yeah. Do you, does this have any emotional connection to you? Hmm. Like, I, I feel like I'm lied to about almost, almost, you know, the doctors are lying, the lawyers totally. are lying, the accountants are lying, the extraction yeah. companies are lying. And it's not because of a million different reasons. It's because growth ran out and our whole society is predicated on a need for economic growth. Yeah, no, there's definitely kind of things that are, that have changed in a, in a system that's just not keeping up and doesn't and doesn't understand that there is such a thing as keeping up and it's like hmm so like one like even glenn talks about this right like he talks about kind of the markets as social technology mentality versus the like basically end of history mentality and I, i guess like the way that I kind of, I, and I definitely saw this uh, kind of zeitgeist 10 years ago that said kind of even more broadly than like markets versus other mechanisms. It's like things are 80% efficient and let's work to make them 95% efficient. Whereas like, the thing that's really going on is that things are 3% efficient and we should work hard on making them 6% efficient. Like if you kind of move away from the narrow context of like I'm I have something to sell and you have something to buy, which is pretty well optimized already, then there's lots of these kind of very big things that are happening that have just completely been missed. And I mean technology and kind of network effects and all and just generally kind of migrating from atoms to bits are definitely all a big part of it. Hmm. So Let's talk about something that's a little bit funny, which is if you start to replace government, Mm -hmm. uh, as we were talking about, and you see it as a monopoly on violence, Mm -hmm. you notice that very often there's a very funny role played by organized crime. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, when we think about organized crime, we tend to get emotionally excited by it for whatever reason. We we make lots of movies about it. Mm -hmm. Um, It occupies the mind as something terrifying and alluring. Mm -hmm. And there's sort of two weird aspects to organized crime. One of which is violence as a contract enforcement mechanism. In other words, you're, you're gambling. So you don't have access to the regular court system. Now you have a gambling debt. Mm -hmm. And so just the way our government would put you in jail 
if you, um, you know, started doing things, you couldn't fulfill all of your obligations and you were doing harm to lots of people and you couldn't be stopped. Mm -hmm. Um, organized crime has to do something. It can't maintain jails. Yeah. So it can put the hurt on somebody for means of contract enforcement. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's not looking to do violent things. It's looking to run illegal businesses for which there's demand. Yeah. And then it has a problem of enforcement. Mm -hmm. Then there's another part of it, which is violence as the product. So, for example, uh, extortion, it'd be a shame if anything were to happen to this lovely business that you're running, uh, is a veiled threat, pay us or we're going to do harm to your business, or, you know, uh, contract killings and the like. Yeah. Are you worried that effectively by introducing parallel structures, both in the form of currency mm-hmm. and in the form of contracts, smart contracts that are the sine qua non, I guess, of, of, mm-hmm. of the difference between Bit- Bitcoin and Ethereum. Right. That the killer app that is most likely to happen while the technology is still clunky and cumbersome and difficult is in the parallel space that either you are going to replace organized crime as a place to do contractual business outside of the normal scope, which could be a a benefit because organized crime still exists and is a bad thing because it uses violence and you would use math in, in place of it yeah. or that it could actually be used to facilitate violence um, by, you know, using, uh, let's say, prediction markets or something else to induce people mm-hmm. to commit crimes um, where the committer, uh, the committer of violence has unusual information about where the violence will be committed and therefore can profit from it. It's definitely a, a worry that you know, I and like, lots of people in the crypto space have had since the beginning, though I do feel like at least so far we've been surprised. Like, it feels like less of it has happened than we had expected. That's the thing. Yeah. Now, what do you, what accounts for the idea that something that can be dreamt mm-hmm. has mostly not occurred? And I definitely have a... Yeah, is, is, maybe it's a great thing about humans that we didn't realize that we're not nearly the horrible people we thought yeah, were. Yeah, and I definitely have a couple of theories about this. So one of those theories is that, like, basically a lot, like, a lot of things that people do, and especially a lot of things that people do in the infosphere because, like, public goods are kind of chronically underfunded and all that rely really heavily on goodwill. And so... You know, you have goodwill that if uh, someone, if you pay someone to write some uh, piece piece of software for your website, it's not going to include some bug. Yeah, some bug that'll steal people's money or tell the FBI where you are. If you um, create a system for enforcing agreements that they'll actually get enforced, then even like on internet forums, they depend on kind of a lot of volunteer labor for just things like moderation. And if you create a group that just goes like fundamentally against like the vast majority of people's values, then it's just going to be hard to find volunteer effort for that sort of thing. And like this, so like that's probably the big the big reason I think why like, so far we don't really see kind of you know complicated like de- decentralized structures being created to facilitate like 
black markets for killing people and so forth because let's start off with something more mundane like a numbers racket right so a numbers racket would probably be a much simpler application so what do you mean by numbers racket here well something that takes the place of a lottery Mm. where some let's say some naturally occurring Mm -hmm. number that would be printed in a newspaper and presumably nobody has the influence over Mm -hmm. what number gets printed Right. Constitutes yeah. the lotto draw. Yeah, and lotteries have existed on blockchain since the beginning. Yeah. Like, uh, even uh, there's definitely been this kind of sub community of people that created these kind of provably fair Ponzi contracts where you know, you have a smart contract and you can throw money in and as soon as like, if you're the nth person to throw money in as soon as soon as two n people throw money in you get like 1.9 uh, back or something like that and like this is just a fun game that people have made and like participated in even fully knowing what the economics of the thing are so yeah and thing things like that have definitely happened though i don't like though in gambling is the sort of thing that like there isn't like there isn't this kind of nine like 99 plus consensus that it's really horrible and evil right because like on the one hand, like lots of people want to ban it, but on the other hand, people do it. And it's something that like people see negative consequences of, but at the same time, it's some, like, it is something that people participate in and enjoy. Whereas the you know, extremely bad stuff, like that's, there's definitely this kind of, uh, this kind of barrier between kind of things that are edgy versus things that are just so far over the edge. And for, things that are kind of so so far over the edge like it is like even with smart contracts and even with all of those things it's still hard to coordinate those structures Mm -hmm. and i think like the blockchain like the blockchain's inability to directly read facts about the real world could even be a saving grace here because like because a blockchain can't directly read like whether or not something in the real world happens it basically means that if you want to have some application whether a prediction market or something else that does like so can we say a little bit more about the pro the intellectual problem that you're you're Mm -hmm. touching so so the idea is that there may be something that's very perceptible to us Hmm. uh about the real world Mm -hmm. but we might naively think well the computer should be able to tell whether that happened Right. Or it didn't happen and that that's a surprisingly difficult thing to code up reliably so that the interface between the world of of bits and bytes and the world of uh, otherwise physical reality, Mm -hmm. um, which often we we don't realize we're thinking about subjectively, Hmm. um, that it's hard to maintain that interface so that the way in which the th- things that have happened in the real world can be definitely agreed upon without yes. any kind of adjudication inside of the digital world. Right, yeah. So I don't, like, know, I don't know how to say that well. Bl- uh, blockchains are kind of fundamentally programmatic medium. All they see is like, data that gets fed into them and what they can compute as a result of that data. And so if you want to create a smart contract that says, if someone figures out how to what the f- prime factors of a big number are, pay them a reward. You can do that because prime num- prime factors are something that you can multiply together and verify. But if you want to have a smart contract that says, 
if there's a hurricane in, in Sri Lanka, then pay 500 bucks, then like you can't do that on the blockchain itself. Because like computer code has no idea what hurricanes are. It has no idea what Sri Lanka is. Uh, no, but it no. could. In that case, well, you could have a a, a designation that you know that the national uh, correct. You can you can get data from third party sources, and this is the thing that somebody else turns it into data. Exactly. This is a, the the thing that a lot of applications are doing. But the thing that's important to keep in mind is that as soon as you do that, like your, your smart contract is no longer fully trustless. Right. Right. So there's this concept, uh, which is like a utopian con concept of a trustless mm -hmm. legal system mm -hmm. so that you don't have the messiness of humans anywhere right. in the system and you can have complete faith and, con and confidence in the mm -hmm. contract that you've struck. Yeah, right. And like outside of uh, like basically giving bounties for solving math problems, like it's not something that you can 100% achieve. So I can't necessarily ensure my vacation that... If uh, if I go all the way to um, Argentina and the weather is terrible, uh, it, it mm. pays out because we can't agree what terrible weather is. Right. Like you can create structures made out of individual participants that can try to kind of align incentives to get people to kind of give to give correct results. Like you can have complicated kind of contraptions involving people giving different answers and policing each other and rewarding people who give the same answer that other people have committed to and things like this. But like you can only try to approach the like the ideal of kind of correct truth. Like you can never one hundred percent reach it. Now you started Ethereum in twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen. Um, started started end of twenty thirteen. I mean, it launched in twenty fifteen. Okay. Would you say let's use launch date as an artificial sure. date? Would you say you are more or less excited emotionally? Hmm than you were when it started you've now been through you've, you've logged some miles here mm -hmm. i definitely definitely excited um i more think excited the, i think the main difference is kind of more de like definitely kind of excited in the sense of like four years well definite like uh, uh, kind of as opposed to indefinite Right, like four years, yeah, four years ago was about like, hey, let's make this platform to kind of try a really a, a bunch of really cool things. We have no idea what's going to happen, and let's just stick it out there. And now, like, we know things about things that people are already doing. We know things about things that people wants to do, and we and we also know know more about like what the limitations are. And so instead of just being this kind of extremely fuzzy dream of like, let's stick smart contracts and algorithms and kind of trustlessify everything. Right. It's something that's kind of both more moderate, but also kind of more like seeming much more like it, like it actually has a big chance of kind of transforming the world kind of precisely because it's kind of moderated to some extent so are you more if, if i gave you a false three choices and mm. by the way smart people always hate these things so feel mm. free to break the model mm. if i gave you a choice between saying are you mostly excited about the technology and the amount of innovation mm -hmm. are you mostly excited about the business opportunities for yourself mm -hmm. or are you mostly excited about the way in which this could transform human life 
would you be would that would that be an easy call or would you say i, I reject that decision tree mm, some mix of the first and the third hmm. i don't know i guess like the framing of business opportunities is definitely kind of never like this is weird i mean despite kind of even i get the sense you know, that you don't love money enough yeah this is true okay hmm I mean, it's weird because I, for a long time... You I, have a lot of it. Yeah, well, I have a lot of it, and it's also even weirder because I, like, for a long time I subscribed to this kind of branch of economics that basically says that like love of money is like the best motivation for people, for, for people to have. Sort and, of like, an Ayn Randian? Um, well, in, I'd say like, in that area. But yeah, it's, but I don't get that... I'll be honest. I don't. I just don't get that vibe. Right. I mean, I, there's. I've definitely kind of shifted a lot over the years. I think like my experience, even within the crypto space itself, has kind of and given me a lot of new information to work with. Say like, more. Like the the basically, and this goes back to this kind of cryptocurrencies as a kind of microcosm of wider society thing, right? Like. If you're like basically any like any movement, regardless of like what it, what the movement is for or what its goals are, to be succeed, it needs to be sufficiently big. And once something is sufficiently big, it needs to have internal structure to coordinate and achieve its objectives, which means right. that it suffers from governance issues, it suffers from public goods issues, it suffers from conflicts with um, adjacent movements and suffers from conflicts between its own values and its and uh, its own desire to succeed and so on and so forth and like it needs to come up with ways to answer like basically almost the, the same kinds of hard problems that the world as a whole is working on well mm. you know it's it's interesting when i look at this sort of world of people Hmm. Maybe it had an epicenter in the Bay Area, though I hmm. think it's less true now, hmm. um, who are trying to figure out what is the future and how do we get there. Mm -hmm. There's a very clear sense that people's creativity and their intelligence is correlated with their financial success, hmm. but it's not very tight. And so hmm. there's like an embarrassment that... Well, that mm -hmm. person is super amazing and they're mm -hmm. not doing all that well. This mm -hmm. person somehow metabolized I mean, a tremendous amount. This is something that I've definitely kind of realized just from kind of my travels. Like I've interacted with a lot of kind of super famous people in different kinds of positions, which includes like some world leaders and includes some kind of leaders of like fields in cryptography. And it in you realize that like people in these positions they are impressive, but they're not like super amazing, godlike impressive, right? Some of them are. Some of them are, but then there's also super amazing, godlike impressive people that just like don't get rid of, get that well, much recognition that, that's, at that's all. That's sort of what I'm trying to get at. Is, yeah, is that if I think about, like if you hang around with musicians, very often you'll have somebody who's a super famous musician and say, you want to know who's really good? Mm -hmm. And they'll tell you somebody you've never heard of. Uh, yep, you yep, say, well, that person's a musician's musician. Exactly this, yes. Right, and mm -hmm. so... Um, you know, if I, if I gave the name of, um, people who are famous for being, let's say physicists, they're very mm -hmm. often the people on television as mm -hmm. physicists, mm -hmm. but they would all point 
to some guy who doesn't give a lot of interviews and say, well, that's the top guy. Exactly. Like basically like social status, like is, uh, predicted by competence multiplied by like basically publicity skill. And that's half correlated with competence for obvious reasons. Right. Like those people also know the people that have the real competence. And that's one of the things that I've always found really interesting about people who have this diehard belief that markets Hmm. produce justice, Hmm. Um, which is, I do think that success in markets is somewhat correlated or has been Mm -hmm. with things like productivity, Mm -hmm. but it's also correlated sometimes with how predatory somebody can be or how lucky they happen to be at a particular moment. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions that I have is, um, if you're really interested in innovation, which is what I sort of pick Mm -hmm. up is one of the main things, um, how does something like Ethereum Hmm. give us a possibility to revitalize innovation after what many of us consider a period of relative stagnancy outside of the areas of computation and communication, which everybody knows have exploded. Hmm. Do you think about how Ethereum can mediate a new renaissance, a new generative age? You sort of talked about it a little bit. Definitely. And I think, uh, I mean, there's kind of Ethereum as a platform for uh, experiments in I mean, governance and public goods funding is one thing I mentioned, and education is another thing that I kind of talk about and and obviously do. I mean, I have a lot of these blog posts on Vitalik.ca and other forums, and like they're one of the big challenges that, uh, for example, is that like for in kind of internet educational resources in general, there's basically two kinds, right? There's like papers and uh, Wikipedia and like basically things that are technically accurate, but they're just like horribly not understandable at all. And we should not be forcing people to even try reading them. And then there's pop sci literature, which is very accessible, but it's often just actively wrong in really horrible ways. And like I I personally, even before Ethereum, like I did Bitcoin Magazine, for example, like I've always uh, tried to find this kind of middle gap, this way to explain, take concepts that are technical and and expand them to a a broader audience so that they are more accessible. And like this to me has been important in part because like I view accessibility of information about the technology as a precondition for even the decentralization of the space. Like if the thing technically runs on 50,000 computers, but only 42 people know how it works, then your decentralization index isn't 50,000, it's 42. And and so... That's a very nice point. Yeah. And so trying to kind of improve like even how we in the Ethereum community kind of work on innovation internally. But so those are kind of things that that happen in blockchains as kind of as a lab for trying out new things, kind of first for the blockchain space and then potentially export it to other things. And then we can also look at kind of blockchains as something that can be used to improve and create better institutions. So like one of uh, the Ethereum Foundation's uh, researchers, uh, Vlad Zamfir, he actually got into Ethereum because he was looking at how to improve academic publishing. 
and like he saw things like you know the existing peer review mechanisms and how they were just very flawed in a bunch of ways and he thought that like hey here's potentially a platform that we could use to like build something that does better and like that's one of his core interests and why he's even continuing to work on the technology. You know, I hadn't understood how insiders viewed peer review in an academic context until a finance professor got drunk at a party Mm -hmm. and said, uh, you know, that guy who's harassing you in your research in finance, you don't know why he's doing it. I said, well, why do you think he's doing it? He said, I know. He Mm -hmm. says, we've created a system where our fees are sky high to consult And we do this by um, making the number of professors in our field small by controlling peer review. Mm -hmm. And so that effectively we are a conspiracy (laughs) and restraint. And like this guy's just telling me straight out Mm -hmm. that uh, this is a gating function to keep their consulting fees high. And that this guy is going to do everything that they tell him to do because Uh, otherwise he can't come into the club and charge these rates. That's sounds about right right so that one of the another killer application so you have one potential suite of applications which have to do with facilitating illegality some of that might regard result in net reduction of harm because you could replace violence with math yes on the other hand um a place where you could have a really positive effect is political economy Mm -hmm. where by removing um the human ability to act badly mm-hmm. um you yeah, effectively you... create a much fairer more representative world exactly yeah uh what do we do so you you have an interest in in the two fields that i find wikipedia can't explain to any normal human being mm-hmm. are theoretical math and physics mm-hmm. even biology you can sort of guess what's going on because you have something concrete to think yeah, through but like even biology like you gotta learn math to deeply grok it because otherwise you're just memorizing like names of chemicals well but you could my here i have a phd in math if mm-hmm. i try to read a math paper mm-hmm. one or two fields over from my own field right i will do less well with it than if I read a biology paper, mm-hmm. even though I've taken no that, class in biology. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a difference between the level of math that you have to know to just because it's like important for you as a philosopher. And then, and like that's about the level of math that I think you need, even to, to be good at biology, to be good at economics, to be good at a lot of things, right? It's understanding like principles even things like for example if you have a trade-off between x and y and right now you're optimizing entirely for x and it's a smooth curve then if you want a little bit of y then you can get your first bit of y at almost like zero cost of x right and that's just a prop like it's a property of continuous functions that like uh, from the maximum the derivative starts at zero and like if you kind of just deeply kind of mentally grok about like a a couple hundred of these facts the same way you deeply kind of mentally grok like how to walk then like you get a lot but then from there there's also like the frontiers and often i mean the frontiers are less important well so here's a weird thing i don't know how to bring up when i try to understand crypto as a space Mm -hmm. i'm always confronted by how incredibly byzantine and impossible it is to understand all of the acronyms all of the sub pieces of history. I mean, it's an incredibly fragmented 
experience in which I spend a long period of time just feeling moronic. Mm -hmm. Isn't it odd that like Ethereum itself suffers from this, this problem? It's hard to know what's going on. Yeah, it's definitely something that we wants to fix. So, I mean, if you ever have suggestions on like what specifically we can make more understandable, I'm always happy to hear those. Fantastic. Now, one thing that I think is really interesting is this uh, episode that occurred uh, in the Ethereum space in which you were faced with a very serious question of leadership Mm. uh, having to do with an emergency that you could have either allowed to follow the rules that had been previously specified in some mm-hmm. sense, or could where you could uh, interject a certain amount of human intervention, mm-hmm. but thereby letting people know that this was to some extent um, not mediated only by rules and computers. Can you can you say a little bit about this famous incident and sure. describe it? Uh, so in uh, 2016, there was this uh, smart contract that a group called Solocket launched uh, called uh, the DAO. And DAO stands for a decentralized autonomous organization. It's a term I came up with about three years before. And it basically means that you you can have a smart contract, this computer program that controls uh, digital assets and if encode a set of rules for an organization. And like you can use this kind of smart contract basically as a replacement for things like companies. And so Swalkit decided to launch a DAO. And their DAO was intended to be basically a decentralized VC fund. So people could apply. The DAO would um, vote on which projects were worth investing in. So leaderless, rule-based, yeah. and virtual. Exactly. You know, it's like hit hit all the cypherpunk notes that are <laughs> at the, in the right place. Okay. And... The thing launched, and we were all expecting it uh, like during its kind of initial fundraising phase, which was also like an open public blockchain process, and to maybe get $5 million. But then it got 5 and it got 10 and it got 20 it got 50 and 100 And then the price of ETH went up, and it got 200 And then when I was um, sitting at a, a friend's... Was this uh, at all alarming that it was so successful? Yeah. After the 50 mark, I definitely kind of switched from uh, excitement to deep apprehension. But, you know, it's a contract. Did you let on that that you were feeling that way? A bit. Okay. Mm. Yeah, so on uh, June 17th, 2016, when I was in uh, Shanghai at a a friend's apartment, and it was about 1530-something in the afternoon, I... uh, saw a message uh, in one of the uh, Skype chats that I, was, that I was in, and someone basically saying, hey guys, look at the DAO, it seems like there's some money coming out of it. And so I uh, checked um, on uh, the public block explorer on the blockchain, uh, and uh, I saw, oh look, the, it seems like about $2 million uh, ETH has actually already been removed from the DAO, and uh, more ETH is kind of slowly being drained over time. And so I pinged the uh, core developers and I asked, hey, is this normal? And at first I was thinking, okay, the alternative is unthinkable. There has to be a reasonable explanation for this. And so you were locked into some sort of denial for the beginning. Yes. And, um, 
the developers looked at it and over the next half hour as more and more people came online and started chattering with each other it became clear that the unthinkable has actually happened and i actually burned about 20 of my own eth like basically just dossing the ethereum blockchain itself and like just spamming it with transactions to try to kind of slowly attack or down is denial of service yeah okay. yeah just spam the blockchain with transactions. Not, not all of my listeners will know sure. the terms mm -hmm. okay so that um, the attackers transactions could not get in as quickly because the attackers transact the attacker could only withdraw something like a couple hundred ETH with every transaction so it was a slow process like in the hopes that the uh, developers would find some way to plug now, was the that hole. an intentional inefficiency or was just that it system? was it was not intentional so in some weird way the inefficiency was a good thing yes it gets even weirder there's an even bigger inefficiency that would uh, that would prove to be an even better thing um so but then the developers however did not find a way to plug the hole but the attacker voluntarily stopped after stealing about 4 million ETH from the DAO. But in any case, the this is the second inefficiency, right? Wait, voluntarily stopped? Yeah. There the, was a request made? No, no, no. As in, the attacker just stopped. Okay. And, and so here's the second and bigger inefficiency. The money that was uh, the attacker took out, the 4 million ETH, it did not go into the attacker's wallet immediately. Instead, it went into a child smart contract, and only after 35 days could the attacker actually take that money out. And this was- A child smart contract, you mean a- Separate smart contract that, that was created through a function call of the main DAO smart contract. Okay. So this was also not intended, right? It was okay. just like a random quirk of this, uh, of fate that there was this big bug that was the biggest uh, smart contract theft in history up until that point. And it put the money into this convenient box where it would just stay conveniently locked for 35 days where everyone could stare and look at it. Limbo. Uh, yeah. And... The, soon after this, like, there were uh, calls happening between core developers and the proposal to remedy the situation with a, a blockchain fork uh, came into play. Right. So basically what happened here is the... Uh, there was a blockchain fork an emotional issue for this community? Yeah. So Why is that? So what, what, I guess first of all... What is kind it? Of, exactly. So explain what, what, what would happen. Uh, so... In general, a blockchain fork is a normal process, right? You have uh, an upgrade and the developers of the Ethereum clients implement code that basically says, after block number 4370000, stop processing blocks according to the old rules, start processing blocks according to the new rules, which have extra features attached. And Where blocks are just set packages of, of transactions. Yeah. yeah, okay. And based... And, um, so every uh, before this uh, uh, kind of these code patches are formally proposed, there is this month long period of many month long period of deliberation where changes are proposed. People discuss them. People uh, talk about them, and generally it's agreed that these changes are good. And so people just go and download the code, and because everyone's downloaded the code, the blockchain after block four three seven zero 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 follows these different and better. This rules. is a very warm and very human process. It yeah. isn't the cold logic of a machine. Exactly. Okay. It's, and so the DAO fork 
it was also a fork. It was also a code change implemented by the developers of the clients that is it was pushed out through a new version of the different clients that people could download and users went ahead and voluntarily downloaded it and it would basically change the rules of the blockchain. Except instead of changing them per permanently, it would only do a single one-time change. And the single one-time change basically said, during block 1920000, before processing any transactions, take the ether that's stuck in the, this uh, child contract and move it into another contract that could then basically refund it all to the victims. And so this was a very kind of manual intervention, right? It basically says, like, we all agree to run code that just irregularly takes this money and just reassigns it to this other thing. So the, the, it's very <laughs> weird because, you know, we always think in like a sci-fi movie that something that you think is human would rip off its mask and reveal itself to be a computer. Mm. And this is the reverse. Exactly. The computer yes. face is ripped off, revealing humans behind this this technological stack yes and i mean ultimately like people talk about kind of blockchain immutability and like this is this idea that basically you're not supposed to do this sort of thing and well, wait, where does that supposed to come from exactly so like there's there's definitely a sense in which it exists technologically because like actually pulling off one of these forks is incredibly hard and for example if it was not the case that the money was conveniently stuck there in one nice little address for 35 days, it would basically not have been possible to do it, right? Because when as soon as you announce a, uh, this protocol change that says we're going to take money out of here, put it in there, the attacker could just move the money from there to a different address. And basically, you play this cat and mouse game and the attacker could win. But sometimes there is this possibility where you, you, you absolutely can just like do these interventions and you can just decide to stop running this code and start running this other code. And the only reason why this is not done more frequently is basically because there exist these norms, right? And there exist norms in the blockchain community. Uh, Vlad Zamfir, the researcher I mentioned before, kind of calls them uh, Sabo's Law and like named after Nick Sabo. And, and Nick Sabo actually dislikes the moniker Sabo's law, but like it is a pretty accurate representation of kind of his beliefs, which is and the beliefs of many in the crypto community, which is basically that like even though it technically is code run by humans, we should act as though it is code not run by humans. And like because it is digital gold, right? Gold is not run by humans. Gold is gold. And so if we want to make something that is like gold, then even though we're unfortunately stuck with this thing run by humans, we should like try as hard as we can to pretend it's not. And like this was the ideology of a lot of people in this space. And the Dow fork very much went against this ideology. And so like even though, in my opinion, like having norms that you can't just like go and edit whatever you want is valuable but like when so much such a large fraction of the ecosystem is at stake it's worth rethinking things but like other people were kind of even more rigid in this regard and so there was this kind of split in the community and a portion of the community actually did not download the updates right a portion of the community did not download these code patches and implement the fork and they just said we will continue running our old, our old chain and the old chain has like, since then been called ethereum classic and it runs to this day this is a fascinating civil <laughs> war 
mm-hmm. in, in essence. Yes. And what I get out of this is that mm. there's this very weird thing, which is that people get very attached to ideologies mm-hmm. and then they come to understand why the simplistic version of that ideology can't possibly work in a warm human system. Mm-hmm. I watched this. Have you ever gone to this festival called Ephemeral, which is sort of Burning Man on the water? That was supposed I've heard to- of it and I got invited to it, but I haven't had the chance to go yet. So it's kind of a libertarian water world in the right. Sacramento Delta. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting is, is that one year, um, in order to come to the festival, you had to have a lecture and you had to agree that you would receive the lecture because of problems that had happened the previous year. And you realize that these libertarians were being forced to invent mm-hmm. governance. And yes. <laughs> rather than just anarchy, you had to have some organized system. Mm-hmm. And so one of my questions is, is, the, is that dream of escape from the heavy hand of government uh, effectively not something to be pursued inside of crypto space for the most part, because we've realized that it is going to require governance and that we can't figure out a way to turn this into a completely cold and uh, methodical process. It depends on which version of the dream you subscribe to. Like the, if the version of the dream you subscribe to is uh, the dream that says that we can finally use algorithms to uh, basically completely eliminate humans ability to interfere in things then like if if your goal is to see that enforced 100 percent, then like no you're not going to get that if your dream is that you dislike how governments have like existing governments and monopolies of violence have hegemony over this uh, social function of uh, coordination and enforcing structures of rules and you want there to exist an alternative then like that's something that we can talk about right so like if the if the dream is to augment yes and I mean, I'd argue that the blockchains have a very kind of necessary role now, especially kind of given modern kind of political trends where like there basically is no single traditional political body that's accepted as trustworthy by the entire world and it doesn't look like there's going to be one. But like if your dream is to kind of completely over overturn things and have like some simplistic notion of digital property rights as the only thing that governs behavior, then that's something that like you can try for, but you're not going to succeed. Let me try something else with you that mm-hmm. I'm curious about. Mm-hmm. You and I are both plugged into this weird alternate world that thinks very differently. And mm-hmm. uh, I had Andrew Yang uh, in that mm-hmm. chair, and you saw that episode of the of the portal yeah. before. Um, some people call this neurodivergence, that mm-hmm. this is a non-neurotypical world. Mm-hmm. And I would say that both you and I exhibit some Mm-hmm. indicia of mm-hmm. uh, not thinking along standard lines. Mm-hmm. The thing that occurred to me is that you brought up Slate Star Codex, mm. which is this website that is extremely influential in our shared world. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about the difference between Slate Star Codex and CNN in terms of sense making. Mm. Is there any way in which the Ethereum world can create a counterweight so that the neurodivergent can rest the stranglehold that seemingly the neurotypical 
institutional world hmm. seems to have on sense making at scale? Like, is there a way of promoting uh, another blog in this world would be like less wrong? Mm -hmm. There are particular thinkers that I think of as being very important, influential. I think you've given to Aubrey de Grey and Eliezer Yudkowsky. Mm -hmm. There's like this very different world mm -hmm. that isn't well known. Um, and in part, I view podcasting as like pirate radio, which is the mm -hmm. phrase I keep, or some mm -hmm. is that because you're, you're Russian. Yes. <laughs> um, what can we do potentially using your technology to even the playing field between corporate sense making and this kind of home brewed sense making that seems to me to be of an infinitely superior level? Hmm. Well, I not guess. infinitely, but quite superior. Yeah. So I think like once again, there's kind of two aspects to kind of blockchain TM that I think are uh, equally valuable here. One is the technology itself. And then the other is the existing community around the technology. And I mean, with the tech, with the technology itself, I mean, you can try to like create in, um, institutions for like do even things like funding like podcasts for example and like even like things like this kind of gitcoin grants quadratic voting for example it would be potentially a great way to kind of fund media organizations that avoids the pitfalls of both uh say uh present day media which is funded by some combination of adver of like advertising and like horrible clickbait incentives and at the same time avoid the pitfalls of like basically sent like centrally controlled media and then like create a third alternative so and like it doesn't even have to be quadratic voting it could be some other kind of mechanism for funding and blockchains could be used as a base layer for that there's also the yeah, kind of blockchain kind of community as a group of people who care about the uh, many of these kinds of ideas. And I mean, even a lot of Ethereum people are definitely kind of Solid Star Codex adjacent. And, and I feel like I've tried my best to kind of bring these worlds together and uh, get them to talk to each other. And I mean, sometimes it is a challenge because like, there's ways in which they're similar and there's a lot of people who are in both and there's also ways in which they're sometimes different but in those those differences can be a good thing yeah i guess i'm concerned that in our we're coming up on an election in the u.s mm -hmm. um and i view fox news and the new york times and cnn as like watching professional wrestling uh mm -hmm. it's got a very clear narrative structure before the facts even come in. Yeah, this is this is actually one of the things that I've only really started noticing maybe in the last like one to two years. Like it's narratives are something that like don't seem like you're there when you're fully inside of them. But once you kind of step outside and you start seeing that like wait these people are missing something and they're making predictions that turn out to be materially incorrect like yeah you know, there's no memory like there's no yeah. cost and yeah 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 you want to there's no accountability at all then it's something that you just actively start think seeking out how to move beyond yeah yeah i think like in, figuring out a, a better kind of funding model for media organizations in general seems well, because in some ways what i 
concerned about is that something like podcasting is almost a public good. And so well, the advertising, it's fully a public good. Well, <laughs> advertising is mm. the one thing that right. uh, keeps, I call it the business model of last resort. Yes. And we are going with an ad supported uh, model because I don't want to disguise. We were, somebody offered to endow the podcast, not, not my employer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I decided against it because I think what I really want to do is to try to figure out how to improve the business model. Mm-hmm. We've talked about a couple of different variations on, on advertising in order to make sure that controversial but very sensible and level-headed people mm-hmm. can weather the storm. That the big problem that I yeah. keep seeing is that advertisers pull mm-hmm. when there's a coordinated campaign to say, drop that program or else. Yes. And there's a mm-hmm. an, a need for something like the mm-hmm. blockchain or a smart contract to make sure that you can't silence people who are speaking decently mm-hmm. just because they've pissed off a very large activist community. Right. So do you see any way in which the blockchain, for example, like I, mm. I might give up advertising if I could figure out a way to fund not only this program, but allied programs. So in 2011, when I was uh, starting Bitcoin Magazine, I, uh, well, it started off with like this one anonymous person whose name I'll never know who, well, aside from Kiba, his internet handle, uh, and who was just paying me five Bitcoin, which back then was $4 uh, per article to write articles for him. Okay. And I mean, this was five times lower than a minimum wage, but I loved it because it was the higher, highest wage I've ever had. <laughs> um, and eventually, despite paying me five times less than minimum wage, uh, Kiba ran out of money. And like he told me, hey, maybe Bitcoin Week we will have to shut down. And I came up with, with this business model that actually ended up saving it for a few months and basically saving it all the way until I got good of poached by Bitcoin Magazine. And the business model is basically I write two articles a week and uh, we'll publish uh, the first paragraph of each article uh, kind of publicly. And we'll say the rest of these articles is kind of hidden for ransom. And here are some Bitcoin addresses. And if people can collectively come together and pay 2.5 BTC to these Bitcoin addresses, then, then free we'll... for everybody. Yes. And then that's nice. Yeah. And it actually worked well. And it actually started raking in like much more money than uh, Kiba had paid before. So, and it's, not saying like that precise model is going to save. But it's a, it's a clever, it's a clever exploit. Yeah, exactly. And like to me, more clever experiments as like what smart contracts are all about. So like let's try lots of different things, and we're gonna have come upon some steps forward that are interesting. Vitalik, I'd love to have you come back and talk to us about other things at other points. But let me just close by asking you a couple of questions about the mysterious origins mm-hmm. of decentralized computing, the blockchain and all of this stuff. Sure. What the hell? Why don't we know who Satoshi is at this point where Satoshi seemingly mm-hmm. uh, came up with the first really viable version of this, this idea. Mm. We can prove that I, you know, I guess those mm-hmm. those blocks have never transacted that that are under Satoshi's control. One mm-hmm. would think, yeah. and that's a very mysterious origin story. Yeah, it surprises a lot of people. Like, does it surprise you? It does. I mean, it's 
like there's definitely not many people that have managed to stay anonymous kind of through that level of prominence like even like Silk Road, the kind of first big kind of crypto anarchist outlaw project on top of Bitcoin. Like after about two years, Ross Albert got caught, yeah. and and the tools for just continuing to look at things that you say until eventually you slip up and you use some word word patterns that match like word patterns that you used under your name, and then you correlate things like. It's difficult to get around. I mean, like I've Unibomber got away with it for a long time. Mm. The uh, yeah, I but... don't know if you know about the Citizens Committee to investigate the FBI that pulled off this amazing heist in 1971. So, I mean, Ted wrote his stuff in the 1970s, right? And that's also 1970s. I mean, now we have. We have the internet, and everyone's stuff is on a, is publicly available. We have machine learning. We have statistical tools. Do you think it's well known who Satoshi is within a group that doesn't want to talk? No. So I in I think that I mean there's high uncertainty about this, but I think that it's uh, very likely that like, Satoshi is one person. You think and, Satoshi is one person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, like there isn't some uh, like very grand conspiracy bigger. Do you than... think you know Satoshi? I so, mean, not that you know who Satoshi is, but do you? Or think... do I think it's someone I know personally? Yeah. Um, so, if I had to pick one person, and the and, and I'm I not have... asking you to out that. Well, you you can say if you yeah, want. Yeah, and I will say it. It's like, it's not an uncommon opinion. If I if I had to like bet my life on one person, it's yeah. Hal Finney, basically because and Hal was around in the early days. He clearly understood what was going on. He clearly participated since the beginning, and he also died at the exact time basically that Satoshi disappeared. And so there's a lot of these kind of coincidences in his favor. But then he's the one person I'd bet on if I had to bet on someone, but I'd also bet against him. Like, it's well under 50%. Got it. So, it's a pretty good caper. Yeah. And there's there's definitely a significant chance that it's like someone who's still in the in the crypto space somewhere that I've met at some point. Um, or it could just be someone we have never met and never will. Hmm. He, he's done a really good job. Like even just kind of setting himself up as this kind of perfect relationship. Or she or they. Yes. Yes. And no, no, she, she really like impressed a lot of people. It's pretty, I find it very inspiring one of the great intellectual feats of our time would have uh, anonymous authorship. Um, mm-hmm. And the only story I know that's comparable to that is this bizarre break-in story where the, the, there was a woman, I believe, named Judy Feingold, who was determined to take the secret to the grave. Mm-hmm. And the other people in the conspiracy mm-hmm. um, left the conspiracy after the statute of limitations had run out and they started talking. And then she, her perspective was, we all agreed we were never going to mention who did it. Mm-hmm. There's some desire usually uh, mm-hmm. to get caught and, and an urge to purge. Yeah. Well, that does make it more likely there's one person, right? Conspiracies get exponentially harder the more people you add. That's true. Um, it's been fantastic having you here. I want to let you know that you're welcome to come back and to talk about things that are unrelated to Ethereum and blockchain and crypto, because actually I have to say I found very inspiring 
um, your attempt to use this platform to rethink what can economics be repurposed to do. And I, I think that that's uh, an unheralded uh, potential killer app for your your program. Well, thank you. It's been, it's, it's been good to be on here. Okay. You've been through the portal with Vitalik Buterin. Thanks for joining us. Please remember uh, to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and to check out our YouTube channel and to subscribe there and click the bell for more episodes when they become available. Thanks for joining us.